Hey, well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here this morning and uh, to share the word with y'all. Totally, it's a really a great time. Love it and uh, love sharing the word. Um, you know, uh, how many of you here this morning uh, could use some encouragement, maybe? Uh, how many of you guys here this morning could just use a word from the Lord to say, you know, carry on, keep going? Um, I know I can all the time. Uh, man, it seems like every day something comes and something kind of sets me back. I feel like I equate it to like a football game to where, you know, I gain 10 yards and I lose five. You know, I, I gain 25 with a great pass or something. And then all of a sudden, man, I, I, there's a penalty. And then now I'm thrown back another 15 yards. You know, those kinds of things happen to me in my life. I'm no different than you. Um, and I know that they happen in your lives as well. And so this morning, I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to see an amazing first chapter, the Apostle Peter writing to a very discouraged group of people. And these people need some great encouragement. If you have read 1 Peter, you know that he's writing to a group of people who have been dispersed out of Jerusalem. He's in Rome actually writing this letter to encourage them. You have first and you have second Peter as well, those two letters. And the purpose is, is that he's writing to encourage them greatly in their walk because there are things that they are away from. They, Peter, talks to them. He says a word to them as that they are pilgrims. They're pilgrims, sojourners in a world that they don't belong. They're, they're passing through. And I look at First Peter and I think, Lord, that is no different than you and me. That is us. We, we are sojourners. We are pilgrims passing through from this life into the next. Amen? I mean, that's what it's about. And like those in, you know, spread out all over. And then verse 1 and 2 tells us where they're at. But in those places, oh my goodness, they need encouragement because they're saying, there's no more of our culture here with us. There, there's no, there's the people that we used to fellowship with or hang out with, they're not with us anymore. And, I, and frankly, because they don't believe in Jesus Christ, I cannot, we cannot even identify with who they are. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? With family, family or co-workers to where even, even they're just not where you're at. They have no relationship with Jesus. And now automatically you have been set apart and sanctified and taken from this world into a world that is so different. You think different. You talk different. You act different. Your perception is totally different from the world. Amen? It is totally different. And as a result of that, you're pilgrims, you're sojourners. You're not of this world, are we? And in this, the apostle Peter then writes to them. And he says, man, you guys are dealing with and having to every day deal with a pagan culture. That is not your own. You may have been a part of it at one time, right? All of us, we have that testimony, right? 
We were a part of that world, that Egypt, but we're no longer a part of that. We're, we're strangers. We're strangers on a journey in a culture and an environment that is not something that, man, we ever want to go back to. Amen? We don't want to go back to that. That's a bunch of junk. And I, and I think about that in my own life personally. Do you guys ever feel, be honest, do you guys ever feel like you're out of place? You feel like you're out of place. I do. I mean, so many times, and I know it's a fight, a fight, a fight, that I'm to keep myself out of my Christian bubble. You guys know what I'm talking about. Sometimes we live in this Christian bubble so much is that, man, even from unbelievers, we're like, man, why are they acting that way? Uh, what do we expect? They're unbelievers. Things that they do, things that they say, the things that are involved in their lives, the priorities of their lives, we sometimes get so surprised and shocked because we, we stay in this Christian bubble. You know, one of the things I, I really like about 1 Peter chapter 1 As Peter sets this up, he's writing to a people who have been forced out of their comfort zone. He's writing to a people who have been forced out of their Christian bubble. And being forced out by the Lord, by the circumstances that God has allowed to happen, amen, that's what he's allowed to have happen, these folks are going to be growing. They're going to be strengthened. Their faith is is going to be assured. Now, Tawan, I, 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 I can't believe it. Now, we didn't talk, your worship leader and myself. We didn't talk at all. But every single song, worship song that was played was one that was, for me, man, wow, that's amazing. The next one, that's amazing. The next one, blessed assurance or that assurance of our faith and the strength that we need, that's even more amazing. And to the very last song, our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That's what these people in our text this morning are all about. They, they need to know the assurance and the surety of Jesus Christ in their life. And that is exactly why, my friends, that, that, that Peter's writing to them. That's why you and I have this morning this epistle on our laps, in our personal devices we're looking at and saying, why, Peter, are you writing to these people? Well, they need encouragement because they are feeling out of place. He writes to encourage them because they've been through or experienced heavy persecution. Now, the persecution I think that they experience is most likely different than the kind of persecution we might experience here in the United States. If you've gone on missions trips or anything of that nature, you see that those particular believers experience a greater amount of persecution than we do at this time. But that's what they were experiencing in these churches. Paul is writing this letter specifically to this group of people who have been dispersed from their homeland and they're feeling out of place. They don't know what to do. And so many times I think in my own life, I think, Lord, I feel so out of place. And that's when we say, Maranatha, Lord, <laughs> come quickly, right? I want to be with you, Lord. Peter's going to share life lessons with these people. 
we're going to be privy to these life lessons this morning. Life lessons of things that he's experienced in his own life. We can identify with Peter. We can identify with Paul, all the different apostles of the struggles that they endured for Christ. We, we can read, whether it's Fox's Book of Martyrs or our own Bible, we can read the struggles they went through and the opposition and the persecution that they had in, in furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and when, we, when we read that and I think, man, Lord, <laughs> my life doesn't compare to these guys. In some cases, I wish it would, but in a lot of cases, I'm like, well, Lord, thank you. It doesn't. <laughs> these guys were stoned. They were left for dead. They were persecuted. They were ostracized. And he's going to share with them life struggles and life lessons. He's an elder at this time. Soon to depart in Second Peter, he speaks of his soon departure that he knew that he was going to die. And so he is leaving these life lessons from this elder, the man, a man who walked with Jesus. So he knows about encouragement. He knows what it means to be under persecution. He knows. And so we want to hearken and heed his words and hearken our ears to him this morning. The perception that Peter comes from As I said, he writes from Rome. There's a lot of persecution going on against Christians in Rome, as well as Jerusalem. And he says, listen, guys, I don't want you to be shocked that you go through various trials. I don't want you to go, what is going on with me? What is happening here? He says, I don't want you to be shocked God's got it all under control. He says that experiencing things such as being a social outcast, maybe put in prison, maybe tortured, or maybe, man, I would think the better thing than torture is give me death then. And he tells them something. And he says, listen, you guys are in a special, special position here. Reason why is because you're partakers of the sufferings. You're partakers of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.7 says, And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Amen? Amen? You guys know what the consolation is, I pray. That's that heavenly reward we have through endurance. You know, someone said suffering lacks any meaning or any purpose if it's void of hope. How many of you guys here this morning are maybe in your own lives? You don't have to raise your hands, but... There may be some of you here in the room that are going through a particular time of having to endure. Maybe maybe it's a family dilemma. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's financial. 
but you're going through something and you're, spe- and you're reaching out to the Lord, crying out to him. And you're saying, man, I, I just need some, I need some guidance here, Lord. I, I need some, man, I just need you to speak some freshness into my life right now because I am just so tapped out, God. Amen. I'm so tapped out, Lord, that I, I don't know if I can even hang in there a moment longer. That's what these people are going through. And maybe some of you here this morning are going through the same thing, so I, I pray that the message this morning will encourage you. Let me date, not myself, but it predates my age, okay? Praise the Lord. Something that's actually predating my age. There's an old, old movie by our former president, Ronald Reagan. There's this movie that was called, um, uh, you know what? I, I can't remember the name of it, but you know the phrase, win one for the gipper, right? How many of you guys are familiar with, you know, do one for the gipper? Some of you do. Well, you know, that, that, the idea of that is that when our backs are against the wall, when, when we feel that there's no hope, when we feel that we're just like underdogs, it's like, win one for the Gipper. You know, I actually went on to the University of Notre Dame's website, and they have this because George Gipp, where you get the Gipper, George Gipp was actually a real player back in 1918. And he was like the best player that Notre Dame ever had. You go on the Notre Dame website, it speaks of his life. It speaks of the movie portrayed by Ronald Reagan. It says this. And who's the coach? Newt Rockney. All right? Newt Rockney was the coach. Newt Rockney gave his one for the Gipper speech to Notre Dame players at halftime of the 1928 Army game. Anybody here? Remember that game? Okay, good. Praise the Lord. Woo! I'd be praying for you and going, Pro, what's your secret, man? What's your secret? Rockney was trying to salvage something from his worst season as a coach at Notre Dame. To inspire the players, he told them the story of the tragic death of the greatest player ever at Notre Dame, George Gipp. Although historians believe that it is doubtful that Rockney's version of Gipps' last words were true, while Notre Dame did win the game against Army. Most and more importantly, the story became solidified into popular culture after its recreation in the 1940 movie, Newt Rockney, All-American. The phrase, win one for the Gipper, was infused into the lexicon of American society and later became a rallying cry for the potential campaigns of the actor who played Gip in the movie. We knew who he was, Ronald Reagan. Here's a transcript of that scene. The scene opens with the interior of the Notre Dame dressing room. The players, seated with blankets draped over their shoulders, are dejected and silent. The door pushes open and Rockney is wheeled in. They look at Rockney in mute apology, then guiltily away, as if to avoid his eyes. His dark, circled eyes range over the players for a full moment of unbroken silence, then quietly, as if the game didn't matter to him. He says this, Well, boys, I haven't a thing to say. Played a great game, all of you. Great game. I guess we just can't expect to win them all. I'm going to tell you something I've kept to myself 
for years. None of you ever knew George Gipp. It was long before your time. But before, but you know what a tradition he is at Notre Dame. And the last thing he said to me, Rock, he said, not Balboa, okay? Rock, Newt Rockney. Sometime when the team is up against it and the brakes are beating the boys, tell them to go out there with all they got and win just one for the Gipper. Oh, Newt Rockney's eyes at this point in the movie, they get really misty-eyed and everything. Says, and he goes on to say, George Gipp, I don't know where I'll be then, Rock, but I know I'll know all about it, and I'll be happy. There's a hushness, a stillness, and all the crowd of football players are there. And Rockney just says, all right. He gets up and leaves. One player says, well, guys, what are we waiting for? Then they all rally around a cheer and they run out of the locker room, no longer dejected, no longer depressed, but they go to win one for the Gipper. And I thought about that and I'm like, you know what? There are times where Jesus speaks to my heart privately and he says, you know what, Tom? In a sense, you know, win one for the Gipper. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't be dejected. Don't be disappointed. Don't be disillusioned because I'm right there with you. Amen. Better than Newt Rockney or George Gipp, we have Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And he is our support. He is our strong tower. He is the refuge that we go into every time we run into trouble. How many of us can say that sometimes that's more than others maybe? <laughs> we run into trouble. We need the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you. It's broken up, I think, in two areas. The first 11 verses is one of which Peter is reminding them. Peter is telling them of where they've, how they've been saved. Peter is telling them in what way they've been saved, the amazing gifts that they've been given, and the cost of their salvation. And then from 12 to the end of the chapter, it's kind of that one for the Gipper type thing. He's bringing to them some remembrance, and he says, now guys, gird the loins of your mind, he says in verse 12. Bring the power back into your loins, into your limbs. Verses, I'll, let me read for us verses 1 through 11. He starts off in the book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, I'm sorry, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his 
abundant mercy has begotten us. Has begotten us. Again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he was testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's the first part of this two parts of chapter 1. In verses 1 and 2, Peter writes to a specific group of people. He writes to the elect. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it tells us he's writing to pilgrims. And I've gone over already what a pilgrim is and a sojourner is. And he tells us every place they're at spread out across to the known world at that time. But he calls them the elect in verses 1 and 2. Romans 8.29 says, Because those who, whom he had knowledge before they came to existence were marked out by him to be made like his son so that he might be first among a band of brothers. You see, for these people, Paul or Peter is already starting off. And he's already saying, listen, you have been chosen by God. Although you are pilgrims, although you are, are sojourners, you're passing through this world, you have been chosen by God. And the fact I know for me is that if I am chosen by God, man, what else is there? What else compares to it? Nothing. And he says, you are the elect. And he's speaking to those who have faith in Jesus. He says, there's been foreknowledge of God. There's been, you've been sanctified through the Spirit. And you've been sanctified for obedience by the anointing of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says that in the first two verses. So he's speaking to those who have faith in Christ. Many of you here this morning who have faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved. And you have a relationship, right? You're saved and you have a relationship with Jesus. You're no different. No different at all than these people here. I mean, there are Christians scattered all over the world. Some in California. Some in North Carolina. Some in Texas. Some in Florida. 
some in India, some in Mexico, Germany, all over the globe. There are Christians all over the place, all who are saved and have a relationship with Jesus. And then there's us. Then he says in verse 2, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Understanding a little bit about their situation, I think they need a lot of grace and they need to know the peace of Jesus Christ. You know, what sees me through a trial is peace. What sees me through a circumstance is peace. Nothing else does. And that peace that surpasses all understanding is that knowledge of God in my life. It's that realization and understanding that God is with me through the trials and that God has allowed the trials to happen. Let's think of Job. He's allowed it for a purpose. And we thought we were okay. I've had enough trial. I've had enough things going on in my life, Lord. Uh, you know, pick on somebody else. Maybe someone who's stronger. I don't know if I want that much training. But God says, no, it's you. Because he has something real special for you. He's so purposed and so intentional in the things he allows for us. This isn't just roll the dice and say, oh, it's on Tom today. Okay, this is what he's getting. He does it with purpose. And he does it with intentionality. And he does it for a reason in our lives. They say that in order to understand or to know the peace of God, you have to know the grace of God, right? So many of us might be in that same situation to where we have to, we have to understand his grace. That even in the trial, there is grace and there is mercy. The word that for me, I'm speaking for myself, that ministers to me when I think of peace, I think of rest. Rest. Because we can only rest when we have peace. And so I look at that and I say, Lord, you know what? I, I, need, I, need, I need to rest, so I need to know your peace. And I need to understand your grace so I can acquire that in my life. So important. Peter is starting off with the most important things here. And he says, you know, this stuff, let it be multiplied to you. That word in the original language is, is the word where we get plethora from. It's called pithuno. And that word is where we get, you guys know what plethora is, right? It's a, it's a plethora of French fries. Yeah. A plethora of steak, a plethora. Man, yesterday we had our baptisms and we had a plethora of burgers. Man, there was an overabundance, a multiplication of things. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it be abounding in your life. Let it be over the top. Because he knows they need it. And they needed it, believe me. They were forced out of their homes, forced to leave family, loved ones, friends. They were forced 
to leave because of all the persecution they were going through. And when things like that hit our lives today, 2016, even as we remember 2011, 9-1-1, 15-year anniversary of 9-11 today, all those things that rocked those families, all those things that rocked the people, and all the lives that were taken. I think for our nation, if there's ever a need to understand or to have grace and peace be multiplied to us, it's today. Our nation. Everything that's going on. Troublesome times. And my friends, it's only going to get worse. The Bible declares it, and I believe it. It's going to get worse. And so because of that, we need to be strong. We need to be remembering those things that have been imparted to us and given to us by Jesus. Amazing things. And Peter's going to get right into that now. In verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy. That's that overflowing mercy. He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection by Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. Conquering death. That's what Jesus did. You see, in verses 3 through 5, Paul is now speaking to us, I believe, as the hope we have in heaven. To know that as he's encouraging them, he encourages us today saying, listen, this isn't it. They just don't put you in the ground and that's it. That's all there is. That's all there ever will be. That's not what we believe. Peter doesn't believe it. And these dear Christians, your brothers and sisters, okay? Put it in context. Your brothers and sisters are the ones that are dispersed. And in that, they're going through these things. And he says, you know, listen. He says, even as we have the victory of the resurrection of Christ, guess what? He's conquered it. He's conquered death. Where is your sting, O death? Nowhere to be found. The hope of heaven says, blessed be God the Father. You know, I think about that and the Lord's resurrection and and I praise God for sending His Son, Jesus. Do you? Do you send? Do you praise the Lord for that? God, thank you so much for making a way for us. Because without that way, there would be no way possible for me to be eternally with you, Lord. You sent the one true perfect sin offering on my behalf. Sorry, I'm being a little selfish on my behalf, all right? I'm like, man, Lord, you did it for me? You did it for me. You sent your son to die for me. And as a result of that, that is so encouraging to my heart. And because it's encouraging to my heart, I can then move forward and I can persevere. And he has so much mercy to extend to you and me, abundant. That means much. That means far. That means overflowing. And his mercy has given us what? A living hope. Is that not cool? A living hope, not a dead hope. That's the opposite of living, right? Dead. A living hope he's given you and me. 
one that is ever-present, one that is always there, one that is alive. It doesn't need to be on life support. Man, it's alive, that hope, because of Jesus. And do you know what a resurrected life is? A resurrected life, according to Tom, and, and the word, I pray I've interpreted properly, but a resurrected life doesn't just begin when we get to heaven. Yes, we'll have our resurrected bodies. Amen to that. But a resurrected life starts with the day that you said yes to Jesus. Amen. A resurrected life begins at the day that you said, I want Jesus in my life because I was dead in my trespasses and now I'm what? Alive. That's my living hope. That's your living hope. And because of that, there is that resurrection spiritually for me and for you all as well. I'm made whole. I'm complete. Not perfect, but I'm complete because of Jesus. He has completed me. I was so insufficient. I was so inadequate. And Jesus came into my life and completed me. And he completes you as well. That's our living hope. And it's realized now, not in eternity. Yes, eternity is forthcoming for every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ. However, a resurrected life demonstration begins here and now. Here and now is your resurrected life to be demonstrated before the areas of Richmond, before your communities and your neighborhoods. That's the whole idea about a resurrected life, living a resurrected life. And in verse 4, he says, To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It starts off with kind of like a topic. He talks about the inheritance. Then he brings three things following that. What is an inheritance? Well, inheritance means that you and I didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. It's just because we're sons of the God most high and daughters that guess what? It's been given to us. Amen. Isn't that great? Amen. You guys didn't do anything. You didn't, I didn't do anything for it. It's just an inheritance passed on. And in that inheritance, Peter says here that it's, there's three things. That this inheritance... It doesn't decay. It's immortal. It's not carnal. It is incorruptible, he says. It is unspoiled, unsoiled. It has no spot or blemish because of the clean cleanliness that we are given. We're made clean by Jesus Christ. It is undefiled. In other words, it is pure and it is holy. And thirdly, it doesn't fade away. The inheritance you and I have been given by Christ. Remember, he's encouraging the folks that are all spread throughout what's, what's known today as modern Turkey. And, and he's encouraging them. He says, look at what you've been given. This amazing inheritance, guys. It doesn't decay. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't fade away. But it's there for you always. Ah, for me, that is so encouraging. In verse 5 then, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. 
You know, our strength comes from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Where else can I get my strength from? Where, where else can I, man, make one more day when things are going bad? <laughs> where, where can I make that day happen? How can I get to the end of that day when I've just been given some bad news? Or I wake up the next morning, and all of a sudden I remember, oh, Lord, I've got to deal with this thing. I got to deal with this situation going on, and I don't want to. I don't want to, Lord. Just, you ever feel that way, guys? Sometimes you just want to stay in bed and put cover under the covers. I do. My wife's the one who goes, wake up, wake up. I'm like, no, no, I'm kidding. But it's like serious. It's like I, there are days to where I just don't want to get out of bed. I just want to just retreat. I want to hide out. And I think, man, Lord, just let the day pass. Just let it get beyond me. But I do know it's not the way God wants me to deal with it. I do know he wants me to trust him. And I'm reminded of what I've been given by Christ. Something that is incorruptible. Something that is unspoiled. (laughs) something that doesn't fade away. And I think about these things that Christ has given me, and it helps me persevere, and it helps me get out of bed. Helps me put that next foot in front of the other. One of the things that we see in verse 5 is that my strength and your strength is protected. That's what the word kept means. It's protected by the Lord. His power which is strength and faith, which is our belief. You see, the idea of that is that Peter is saying, listen, guys, I know you're going through a tough time. I know it's difficult. I know you feel alone. I know you feel dejected. I know you feel you're ostracized. I know some of you have lost loved ones because of Christ. I get that. I realize that. But it is your faith, the strength of your faith that is kept by God It's kept by the Lord, protected by God. It's in that faith and that power through Christ that at the end of the day, the time of the day of the Lord or the end of our lives, that we can show the world that we have a faith that endures to the end. To the end. We will not falter. We will not give up. We will not throw in the towel or raise the white flag of surrender. But instead, we will persevere. Head up, not down. Head up, following Jesus. That's what we're called to do. And that's what Peter is saying here. Listen, at the end of the day, man, a faithful endurance through a blessed assurance. That's how I see it. You know, faith isn't just a belief, but it's an assurance of something. It's the hope that we're given by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? I just love that. A Puritan guy by the name of Thomas Brooks 
back in 1654, long time ago. He wrote this, Assurance is the believer's ark where he sits. Noah-like, quiet and still in the midst of all distractions and destructions, commotions and confusions. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. They didn't sing it this morning, which I forgive you guys, all right? You didn't sing this song. I thought you were tracking, Tawan. I thought we were tracking, man. What happened? Where are you at, bro? Hey, come on, man. We were... Got that mind thing going, I thought. But seriously, this song came to mind when I was doing my studies. And you guys know it. It's probably a no-brainer to you guys, but I have to spend like three hours studying and going, ah, bing, okay, it happens. Written by Fanny Crosby in 1873, I dare say before any of us were born, right? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, I'll get through it, I promise. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture, how burst am I sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Isn't that amazing? Faith isn't just believing in something, guys. It's It's a blessed assurance that we have given to us by Jesus Christ through God the Father. And he has begotten to us, given us an inheritance that is amazing. And that's what we rely on. That's what we trust in. Because it's an assurance for us. Verses 6 through 9, I've already read them. But he says, now in this you can greatly rejoice, guys. In this. In what? Well, everything else he's already spoken about. It's like, wait a minute, I can rejoice? I can rejoice? Rejoice means to jump for joy. (laughs) Exceeding joy, be glad. But he says, all but for a little while, guys, all but for a little while, a season is that's what it means. You will be heavy burdened, which is grieved. You'll be heavy burdened. Maybe some of you this morning are heavy burdened. Maybe some of you are just kind of heavy laden. And Peter says that just for a little while, just for a season, and it'll go away. But we have to stand tough. Then he says in verse 7, 
that the genuineness of your faith is way more precious than gold melts away. Though it's tested by fire, you may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end of the day, that we'll be found to praise, honor, and glory our Lord. Genuineness means quality. It means quality, not quantity. Something that is genuine, something that is real, something that is maybe like we used to say when I was growing up, made in the USA, right? Something of quality. Someone said this, a faith not tested can't be trusted. You see, you really can't trust anything that saying says until it's been tested out. That's why you test things to check the quality, the genuineness of that thing or that situation. Someone also said there's no testimony without a test. We're at the heart of every one of our testimonies has been a test. Amen? It's been a test. And as a result of that, we thought it was going to break us. But instead, what it did, it formed us. It formed us into something that we had no idea that we could even be. No idea that we could go through that testing. Maybe it's been something physical. And there's been a great testing going on in your life. And you're like, Lord, can I endure this anymore? Can I deal with another day of this? And Jesus is like, well, I'm right there with you. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. That's why Peter says, gird the loins of your mind. Starts here. Gird the loins of your mind. Remember, pull the power in. Remember what God has done and what he's given you. He's given us all the tools to handle these times in our lives. I think faith many times is like steel. And what I mean by that is that unless you put a piece of steel in a fiery furnace, it cannot be molded into what the maker wants. It cannot be shaped into something the designer desires. Any architect, any builder that orders a piece of steel, you see them on the interstate going on some truck. Well, that thing has been put into a fiery furnace so that it can be molded into that beam. It can be molded into that curve that you see on really beautiful buildings. But it can't, it's of no use to the builder. It's of no use to the designer, the architect. Unless it's gone through the fire. I look at it that way in my own life. I am no use to the Lord unless he puts me through the testing. Unless he molds me into the things that he wants me to be molded into. Unless he does that in my life. I am of no use to him. Because then it's all about me and I'm going to do my own. And I'm going to stay in that whatever that piece of thing is. That's just going to be me. But God then, in his loving kindness, right, in his way, he puts us into that fiery furnace so that he can mold us and shape us into his use and for his good purpose. 
And then because of that, oh my goodness, there's a demonstration of that faith because people are watching. People are looking. People in your own church, people in your neighborhoods, in your families, your unsaved family members, all these folks are watching you. And how are you going to handle this situation in your life? How are you going to handle this problem? Man, it's a zinger. And it's like come in unexpected like a curveball. And you're like, what do I do with this? People are going, hmm, wonder what he or she's going to do with this. Hmm? I wonder. How are they going to react? How are they going to proceed? They're watching. And so our faith is also to be demonstrated. Our faith is also to be manifest outwardly in our lives. Even while you're going through that fiery furnace, God is molding you and shaping you and taking off those parts He doesn't want you to have. And it hurts. And it's painful. But it's for his good purpose to be worthy vessels in his house, the scriptures tell us. In verses 8 and 9, Whom having seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, with that, there's, it's, it's weird being a Christian. And I say this because the Bible says we're going to have joy while we're going through trials. The Bible says that we're to have joy inexpressible going through a trial. And that just doesn't commute, compute with my mind or what I'm going through. I don't know about you guys, but it doesn't with me. And I'm like, Lord, it just doesn't seem right. It seems the opposite of how I should be reacting or acting. Verses 10 through 12, Paul then brings up the saints of old. The prophets that can only look forward to something, look forward to the grace that was yet to come, who was Jesus. Verses 11 and 12, these prophets were faithful Faithful men who foretold of things that they would never experience. But we would, and you have. Peter says in a, in a way, look at their faith. Look at what they've endured for what they could never experience in their lifetime. It's like you're doing something and you'll never be able to reap the reward from it. It's like planting a field and never being able to reap the harvest of it, yet you've done the hard work, you've sweat, you've tilled, you've prayed, you've done all of these things, and yet you're never going to be able to get one thing out of the production of that growth. Will you still do it? That's what the prophets of old were all about. Verses 13 through 16. Now we're getting into that second part. Verse 12, he says this, To them it was revealed that not to themselves... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest in your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as was who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the name of the Father, who without partiality judges according to each of your one's work, 
Conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest or shown in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit, the sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruption, seed, but of incorruption, through the word of God, which lives and abides, how long? Forever. Because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and a flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Paul ends now the second part of this chapter. It's like, well, okay, now here's what you do. Here's what you do. Here's how you go about it. In verses 13 through 16, he speaks about the power of the mind. That's what I was talking about earlier. The power of our mind to take captive the promises and the things that God has given you and me. To hold fast to those things. It's important that we remember those things. He then goes on to say, being sober and being at rest. He says, be serious about it. You'll be at peace. Think not about what you're going through now. Think about the refining at the end. I know, believe me, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, am I not? It's hard, Tom. It's difficult, Tom. You don't know what I'm going through, Tom. You don't have no idea what's before me. You don't know what I've lost. You don't know what I'm having to do without or whatever. You just don't know. You're right, I don't know, but God knows. He knows. So it's not about what we're going through now, but about what's coming. And that's the anchor. The anchor of Jesus Christ. And he's the anchor for my soul. He's the only one in my life that is steadfast. He's the only one in my life that is unwavering. He's the only one. Verse 14, Peter says, Now we know. Now we know. Because he says, As obedient children, not conforming to yourselves, to the former lust, as in your ignorance. He says, Now you guys know. You're not ignorant anymore. You know of the promises of God. I've spoken to these things already. I've written these things to you. You've, you've seen them. You've, you've had them in your life. You now know says Peter. And in 15 and 16, he basically says, hey, be separated, be sanctified, be holy. Don't cave in. <laughs> Don't cave in. Man, it's the worst thing we could do. It's the worst thing we could do. 
And that's why, just as a side note, we need other Christians around us. That's why we need the, the, the sisterin and the brethren, right? That's why we need them to lift our hands up and lift our arms up like Aaron and her as the battle raged on. The victory was found when Moses kept his hands lifted up to the Lord in worship. A lot of times going through a trial means that we're going to be called to our knees a lot more in worship, prayer, psalms, spiritual helms, just singing praises to God and worshiping Him, praying and speaking to Him. Honestly, you guys, maybe you guys are like me. Sometimes I, I think God doesn't know my heart in the sense to where I'll, I'll pray. And then when I pray, I'm like, man, Tom, you dummy. You, you didn't say what was really on your heart. You didn't say really in the way you wanted it to say to God. This is a side note. Be honest with the Lord. Audibly honest. Comes from our mouth. And then, in 17 through 19, is where he says, Pray and be steadfast. In verse 17, he says, Call on the Father, which means pray. Then he says, Time of your stay here in fear. Towards the end, he says, That's pretty much a pilgrim kind of language, meaning saying, You're not going to be here forever. And then in verse 18, he says, This is their motivation. Verse 18, it's a great verse. He says, Knowing. So you see, we're not ignorant anymore. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed, bought at a ransom with corruptible things, things that decay like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. I don't know. I chuckle every time I see the word aimless. I just think of my life prior to Christ, man, aimless, wandering around like a bozo, you know? And I'm like, Lord. And I think I was like, oh, the Bible, it's a Bible word, right? Aimless. I like that. That's how I thought of myself for so many years, especially my younger years growing up. Paul says, this is your, or Peter says, this is your motivation. You weren't bought or redeemed with things that corrupt, things that die away. Aimless conduct means the works, you know, by their forefathers, things through tradition and with the works that they had to attain their salvation and maintain their, their goodness with God. There's no life in that. There was no forgiveness in that. And believe me, guys, there was no joy. In verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Revelations 5, 9 says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by the blood of, by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." Only Jesus is worthy to unloose the scrolls. Verses 20 through 25, as we close. 20 through 21, Peter says, pretty much, place your faith and hope in God. Why? Romans 16, 25 says, Now to him who is able to establish you, put you on firm footing according to my gospel, the gospel of life, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest, speaking of our Lord, and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Place your faith, place your hope in Jesus. Then he says at the end of this chapter, just remember one thing, you belong to Jesus. You don't belong to anyone else or anything else, but you belong to Jesus. And because you belong to him, he's going to help you. Because you belong to him, he's going to be there with you. Because you belong to Jesus, he's going to strengthen you. He's given you so many great things. He says, listen, Jesus has purified you. He's made you clean and set you apart. There's a sincere love, which means no hypocrisy. Fervently, pure, being intent and clear. And then in 24, he talks about some kind of incorruptible seed. Corruptible seed, all flesh is grass. That's the idea, corruptible seed, flesh, uncorruptible seed. Man, Jesus, the Word of God, uncorruptible. And it's interesting. The very end, he says, Now this is the Word by which the gospel was preached to you. Interesting. If you look up that word, word, there in our text, it's not logos. It's not like what we think it is. But it's rhema. And this word rhema gives us the idea of a command. So Paul ends this first chapter to these guys saying this isn't just a suggestion. This isn't just something that I'm just spouting out to you and I'm just saying because I want to be heard or I want you all to read the letters of the great Peter the Apostle. But he says this is actually a command command for us from the elder the apostle Paul that's why he set it up way in verse 1 when he said Peter, I'm sorry I keep saying Paul sorry, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ establishing his eldership establishing his authority as an as a apostle of Christ and at the end he says listen the rhema the command I give you. And I think we should all take a lesson to listen to our elders, right? Peter is one of the elders in the church. And so we take a good ear to what Peter has for these Christians in modern Turkey today. And for you this morning, oh my goodness, if you are going through something, if there is something, man, heavy duty, on your heart, heavy burdened. I know we're going to have an opportunity to pray afterwards and there'll be guys and gals up here, I'm told, that can pray for you. But just let it all out for the Lord, you know? Just just be honest with God. He knows where, where, what's going on with you where you're sitting right now. Come up. Be prayed for.